Okay, so I'm on my way to the church this morning, and uh, if any of you know what I drive, it's this beast, this Dodge Ram, 07 Dodge Ram uh, truck I have in the parking lot, which gets about, you know, minus six gallons to the, to the mile. And um, so anyway, I go, to the, I go to the gas station, and I like, man, I need to get some air in my tires. So I, I fill up the tires, and it's like, it's like a buck 25. Inflation. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> but speaking of inflation, right? I mean, everything's expensive right now, isn't it? Everything's going up. Gas, six bucks a gallon. I can't drive that beast, you know, for six bucks a gallon. Um, things going on in our world uh, war, civil unrest. Um, crime is off the chain, right? Uh, murder, mass, uh, mass killings. Um, we're seeing a lot of that, aren't we, in our culture right now? And it can really kind of get us down. It can really kind of, you know, we look at the world and we see the, you know, the injustice in it. We see um, all that stuff going on, and it can really, really get us down sometimes. Um, even us Christians, right? But I've got some good news. Would you guys like to hear some good news this morning? You want some good news? Are you ready for this? Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming, amen? For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry and a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. And then Matthew 24, verse 42 says, Therefore, stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Early 20th century pastor Theodore Epp, he wrote, Live though Christ died yesterday, rose from the grave today, and is coming back tomorrow. This morning we're, we're going to be taking a look at the coming of the Lord. And um, it's not a subject that gets a lot of coverage in church these days. We don't hear that a lot in the pulpit, but I feel like it's even more important now than it's ever been. Why? Because of the many qualities God has given us humans, a desire for justice and joy and to see things set right is a fundamental one. Yet the human quest for these things is always frustrated by our sin nature. It's always frustrated by our sin nature. It's always desired, but never quite attainable. We never quite get there. And as Christians, faith, hope, and love are some of the fundamental outgrowths of our relationship with Jesus. Our hearts break at what we see going on in the world around us. Things in our own lives, things in our communities, things in our world. Always a reminder of our fallenness as humans. Still, our hope is grounded in the prospect, on the prospect of serving our Jesus in eternity. 
and being participants in God's redemptive plan. Upon his return, Jesus will make things right again. The coming of Christ, uh, excuse me, St. Bernard wrote, even the holy men who lived before the coming of Christ understood that God had in mind plans of peace for the human race. That reminder should give us all a renewed hope and a refreshed outlook as we attempt to navigate this complex life we find ourselves in. Now, first, I want to make a disclaimer. I know for many, the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is a proof text for the pre-tribulation rapture or the taking up of the church. And that, of course, would lead to a conversation about when it occurs and whether it's before, during, or at the end of the Great Tribulation. Does Christ physically return to rule on earth and establish his millennial reign at the instant we believers are taken up? Or does it happen at some other point over the Great Tribulation? And if you think I'm going to dive into that debate, you're sadly mistaken. <laughs> I want us to see the beauty of the forest without the trees getting in the way. In other words, we can get caught up in that debate and miss the glorious truth that we will be joined with the Lord. He is coming for us and that he will one day make everything as it's meant to be. Amen? So we want that to be our focus this morning. So this morning we're going to be taking a look at 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 11. So if you would, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. And uh, I'll give you a little bit of background while we're, while we're getting there in our Bibles. The first letter to the Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul, and it was written to, obviously, the church of Thessalonica. And it was uh, around 50 AD, theologians believe. And we know that the Apostle Paul went on at least three missionary journeys around the Mediterranean. And these are recorded in the book of Acts. This letter was penned by Paul from Corinth. He stayed there for several months towards the end of his second missionary journey. And we know Paul had visited Thessalonica and planted a church there. Paul's trip and visit to Thessalonica was fraught with opposition, and Paul and Silas had come to Thessalonica from Philippi, where the message had caused a riot and ended up getting them beaten and thrown in jail for a few days. Eventually, the local authorities discovered that Paul was actually a Roman citizen. That's a big no-no when you're a Roman citizen. To beat him without a trial and conviction was a serious offense under Roman law. So they quickly sought to release him and kind of shoo him out of town. Next stop, Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica was a thriving port city with a thriving pagan cult system, which brought a thriving amount of revenue to the city. And to this day, Thessaloniki, which is modern Thessalonica, is one of the biggest cities in Greece. So Paul and Silas, they began preaching in Thessalonica. As was Paul's custom, he first brought the gospel to the Jews, and he started teaching in uh, the synagogue. Now, some of the Jews responded to his message. So did some of the Greeks, the Gentile people living there, along with some leading women in the community. But in short order, 
some of the Jews who had opposed Paul's message began stirring up a mob and getting the whole city in an uproar, sort of a Philippi 2.0. The mob attacked the house of Jason, who had been hosting Paul and Silas, and the mob was looking for Paul. When they didn't find him there, they dragged Jason along with some of the other new believers out of the house and delivered them to the local leaders. They ended up being able to post bail and return home, but they quickly got Paul and Silas and sent them secretly on their way during the night, fearing that uh, harm would come to them if they didn't. Now, right after the very beginning, uh, this baby church was under attack. Paul never had the opportunity to teach them everything he wanted them to know. Paul had a huge burden and love for these people. So he sent Timothy to go check on them. And after a brief and encouraging ministry in Thessalonica, Timothy reported back to Paul in Corinth. He was pleased to report to Paul that the church was thriving and faithful, even under intense persecution. It was implied that they had actually lost some people. Some people had died um, for their faith in Thessalonica. Um, but Timothy also reported that they did have some questions about faith. So in this letter, Paul sets out to encourage them to defend his ministry against accusations by some of the local non-believers there and to answer many of the questions of faith, chiefly among them, Christ's return. So let's begin with chapter 4, verse 13. And it says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So Paul is addressing one of the main problems the church there has about what happens to Christians when they die. Paul didn't have the opportunity to complete his teaching when he was with them. He, he had been forced to leave hastily, and although the church was thriving, they were left with a, an incomplete knowledge of such matters. They didn't have the understanding to cope with the death of some of their people. In fact, it left some of them with a sense of grief and hopelessness. So Paul wanted to address this. Here he uses the word asleep. This is intended as a euphemism for death, much like we might say today, they passed away. But Paul chose this euphemism for an additional reason, which it's going to become a little bit more clear as we read on. Now, some have taken this passage to mean that the spirit and the soul remain asleep in the ground until the return of Christ and the resurrection of the dead. This is sometimes referred to as soul sleep. However, this isn't the intent here, and it isn't what the totality of Scripture teaches us. For instance, we know from passages like 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And in Luke 23, 43, where Jesus told the man next to him on the cross, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So in short, for the believer, though our physical bodies remain in the grave, to be absent from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord. Verse 14 and 15. 
It says, For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, even, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We have more than just a wishful hope. We have Jesus, who gave us an amazing example of what that looks like for us. All we have to do is look at what he did. Now, for the church of Thessalonica, their troubled minds were probably put at ease by this statement. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul goes on to say in verse 15, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So first, Paul assures his readers that the details he's about to share with them didn't spring out of his own mind, out of his own imagination. It isn't some educated guess. It isn't some clever interpretation of an obscure passage of Scripture. Instead, this comes from the Word of the Lord. It isn't clear whether Paul thought the church in his day was going to see the coming of the Lord. It wouldn't surprise me at all if, if he did and if they did. I mean, every generation since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus has thought theirs would be the one. Especially true for those generations who've experienced the worst of humanity's uh, evil over the centuries. But two things are really clear to me through this. First, we have lived in the last days since Jesus was among us. And secondly, we are closer to his return today than at any other point in human history. Amen? So Paul wants to assure them that these brothers and sisters who've died, that they've lost, will not miss out on Christ's return. In fact, they won't even be late to the party. Verse 16, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with a cry and a command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Wow. There's three things I want us to notice here. The Lord himself will cry out a command, along with the voice of an archangel. There are only two angels mentioned in, in Scripture by name. Gabriel, who has a prominent role as a messenger of God, he's mentioned in Daniel chapter 8 uh, and chapter 9, Luke 1. And then Michael, portrayed as the leader of the armies of God. He's mentioned in Daniel 10, uh, Jude 9, and Revelation 12. Michael is the only archangel mentioned in the Bible. Now, we don't know if... He's the only archangel. We just know that he's the only one mentioned in the Bible. And the third thing is the sound of the trumpet of God. The trumpet or the blowing of the shofar in the Old Testament was sounded in victory. The Greek word Paul chose here is salpinx, which means war trumpet, 
Christ's return signifies the victory, the culmination of thousands of years of spiritual conflict with Satan, Christ's con conquest over sin and evil. He's promised and assured us of his return in glory to rule in righteousness, restore justice, and bring peace to earth. How we yearn for peace, an end to war, an end to injustice, an end to suffering. To my mind, with the sounding of the war trumpet, the archangel's voice, that's, that's got to be Michael the leader of God's armies as Christ returns in victory, my opinion. Can you imagine in an instant when no one is expecting it, the world's going about its usual business, it's a quiet, typical, or chaotically and wicked day, as far as that goes, and suddenly, like an earthquake or a volcanic eruption, out of nowhere, totally unexpectedly, the sky opens up. A shout that can be heard all over the planet rings out. The voice of Jesus, then the archangel, then the ear-piercing sound of trumpets can be heard everywhere. No doubt in his mind's eye, Paul heard that majestic blast as the shofar, the curled ram's horn of the Old Testament. Then it begins, the earth starts to tremble, the bodies of the saints begin to rise from their graves, and some might ask, well, how is it possible? How is it possible for God to raise the dead of those whose bodies have long since returned to dust, of those who've perhaps been cremated? And I would simply say this, our God knows our every cell, molecule, atom, proton, electron, neutron, and quark. And if he knows those things, how difficult would it be for him who created the whole universe and everything that is and created the very nature of the reality that we experience, how difficult would it be for him to raise you or me from the dead? Not very difficult at all, really, huh? Well, what will this body he raises look like? Scripture tells us it's going to be different than the ones we have. In theology, these are referred to as our glorified bodies. In the letter to the Philippians, Philippians 3, uh, verse 20 and 21, Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And again, in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 through 44, Paul says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. What is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Verse 17, back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17. 
Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. The dead would be raised in glorious, immortal bodies, fit for heaven. And those believers alive will be instantly transformed into their glorious and immortal bodies with them. Transformed together, we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. All of us Christians will ultimately be in one of those two categories, won't we? Verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. For the family of God, this one should be one of pure joy for us, for the family of God. It will be the day of our deliverance from death and the grave. It will confirm all our hopes, our long-cherished hopes. It will reunite us with dear friends and family who've died in the Lord. If there's anything deserving of our cheer and sustains us through the pain and suffering in this life, it's the anticipation of the glorious second coming of Jesus and the prospect of standing before him clothed in the robes of his righteousness, not our own, in his righteousness, surrounded by all those who we have loved and who have died in the faith, along with all those redeemed of every language and people throughout all of time. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 through 3. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So Paul continues to discuss future things here in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5, but he makes a, a gentle transition within that subject. He uses the small Greek words paradi to indicate the transition. This is translated now concerning. Paul often uses that same phrase to indicate a change of subject. It doesn't necessarily mean a completely unrelated topic, though. But it does indicate that Paul is shifting gears, so to speak. So he's turning his focus from one aspect of this topic to a different aspect. And he begins by reminding the church they have no need for anything else to be written to them because nobody knows the time and the season. Nobody. Nobody knows the time of the season. Why not? From the time of Jesus' earthly ministry, he has told his disciples that his return, associated with end times, would come like a thief in the night. Matthew 24, Luke 12, um, 2 Peter 3, all talk about that. Paul's readers were probably already aware of this part of the end times teaching anyway. This is why he, he felt he had no need to write to them about these things. He had likely taught it to them personally when he was with them. But just like a thief is the one who gets to choose the timing of his burglary, and the victim has no idea when that will be, so, so too God alone knows the day and the hour of Christ's return. And the only thing a potential victim uh, 
the only thing a potential victim of a thief can do is prepare for that event and always be ready, right? So we too are called to prepare. Having spent most of my adult life in law enforcement, this analogy really kind of speaks to me. Um, back in the day, we were trained in what's commonly referred to as Cooper's Colors. Cooper's Colors. It's a system that breaks down situational awareness into four levels of mental preparation, white through red. And I still kind of live in perpetual yellow. It drives Patty nuts when we're in public. I still like to be able to see the door when we go to a restaurant. And, you know, I look at where the exits are when I go into a building and things like that. It's just kind of ingrained in me, condition yellow. Now, Paul is calling believers to live a life in preparation for such a time. Maybe you don't think his return will be in your lifetime. Well, as I've said on numerous occasions, um, Bob's heard me say this a lot of times, <laughs> um, the last sound I hear in this life is just as likely to be the horn of a Kenworth truck as it is the trumpet of God, right? <laughs> So I need to prepare equally. I need to prepare equally for anything, right? I need to be, whether I believe I'm going to live long enough to see Jesus come back or not, none of us knows when our day and hour will be, right? So we need to be prepared in season and out of season. And when he comes, it will be in an instant, no warning. Verse 4 through 6. But you are not in darkness, brothers and sisters, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So Paul reminds his readers that they're not in darkness like the unbelievers who are unaware of the disaster that's awaiting for them at the coming of the day of the Lord. As children of daylight, they are to live their lives distinct from those who dwell in the night. They're to live in the light of God's truth. John chapter 3, verse 19 through 21, Jesus tells us, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Yes, judgment is coming against all the evil and wickedness in this world, but those who have put their trust in Jesus through his death and resurrection have found mercy. Let's not sleep. Let's keep awake. Let's be sober. In other words, stay alert. Condition yellow. Keep our minds clear and ready. Verse 7 and 8. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, this relates to being ignorant of the coming of Christ, spiritually and morally unprepared. Twice 
within three verses here, Paul cautions his readers to remain sober, to remain sober. The idea is obviously important because he mentions it again. Well, what does he mean by remain sober? Being sober and being vigilant are very closely connected. The call to be sober is found in multiple places in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Timothy 4, Titus 2, 1 Peter 4. And as is the call to be vigilant or alert, Mark 13, Ephesians 6, 1 Peter 1. The word translated sober in this chapter is the Greek word napho, and it literally means free from intoxicating influences. Free from intoxicating influences. To be sober means to not allow ourselves to be influenced by anything that's going to lead us away from God's truth and sound judgment. Sobriety is a state of being. Breastplate and helmet are military symbols. Like armed soldiers, we need to be prepared for any eventuality. Believers should be protected by spiritual vigilance and moral diligence. We should be armed with the virtues of faith, love, and hope in the same way a soldier is protected by his breastplate and helmet. Verses 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Following these analogies uh, of sharp contrast between those who live the day uh, and, belong to, and belong to the night, Paul sums up his discussion on the coming of the Lord with a, with a final reminder of the hope of the glorious destiny for us believers. Now, Paul encourages us to continue in faith and hope while exhibiting the fruits of love for one another. He reminds us that God has not destined believers for the wrath of the coming day of the Lord, but for obtaining salvation and rescue through Jesus, regardless of whether they're awake. And in verse 11, it says, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Not just be encouraged, but encourage each other. We need to continually take hold of this hope, this truth, and speak it out to each other. Remind each other. Build each other up. Paul knows they were doing this already. He emphasized they keep it up all the more. This hope is where we draw our confidence from. It's how we keep from being discouraged in a dark and sometimes painful world. It's how we're able to be at peace and share God's love. 1 Peter 1, 13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus. In conclusion, um, so how should I respond? How should we respond? How does our knowledge of the future affect us as we live in the present? Well, first, we must make sure we've taken hold of what God has given, his salvation. God has given everyone an opportunity to be saved from death, damnation, and wrath. Christ died to pay for our sins and rose from the dead to give us eternal life. 
Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. We can't raise ourselves to the newness of life any more than we can raise ourselves in the future resurrection of Christ's return. We can't do that. We don't have that power. Both of these resurrections are a gift from God. All we must do is acknowledge our inability to save ourselves and place our full faith and confidence in Christ. That's all. John 3.16, Jesus tells us, For God so loved the world. Familiar verse for most of us, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Second, continue to resist sin and a sinful lifestyle. The salvation doesn't have only our sin and guilt in view. It's much bigger than that. We've been declared not guilty before the heavenly court because of Christ's death in our place. He's also called us believers to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which we have been called. Ephesians 4.1 There really shouldn't be any contradiction between being saved by grace and living a life of righteousness through grace. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.10 Third and last, look up with hope in our great God and Savior. One day there will be a moment like no other. One day there will be a moment like no other. With a thundering shout and the blast of a trumpet, Christ will split the sky, blast open graves, Claim his own. Only the power of the God-man can accomplish such salvation. Jesus. We who are alive, laboring along in this failed world of sin, suffering, and death, will finally see our Savior. That's good news, isn't it? That's good news. One day we will all meet those loved ones who have gone before us, having been transformed into their glorious bodies as we are all taken into heaven to be with our Savior, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, our friend and King. Amen? Doesn't that give you hope? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for all that you've done for us. And we so look forward to your coming, Lord. We look forward to spending eternity with you. We look forward, forward to that glorious time when you make all things right, Lord. When you restore things as they were meant to be, Lord. And let us see you in your power and your glory. Gives us hope. Help us to encourage each other. Help us to lift each other up as we look towards that time. 
We thank you, Jesus. Amen.